Welcome to Spotlight's Extra Time from Stile Antico. This podcast accompanies our series of films released in spring 2021, shining a spotlight on four of our favourite pieces of music from the Renaissance. With the help of expert academic guests and musical illustrations, we explore the history and context of these works. In this podcast, we'll be digging a bit deeper with some extra material. Check out our Acast page for some more recommended listening. You can view the videos at www.vimeo.com forward slash on demand forward slash spotlights. Thanks for tuning in. This week, we're going to be shining our spotlight on a real favourite piece of mine. It's a piece I've enjoyed singing ever since I was a treble. The piece is called How Are the Mighty Fallen? And it's by a composer called Robert Ramsey, perhaps not a household name, uh, and we'll explore a little bit more about his life and work later on. Well, to explore this wonderful music and uh, some of the historical background behind it, I'm really pleased to be joined by my colleague Kate Ashby, soprano in the group, and by Dr. Claire Jackson from the University of Cambridge, uh, and an expert in the history and culture of the Stuart period. Well, How Are the Mighty Fallen is one of a group of pieces that we think was written in response to a particular tragic event which took place in the year 1612. The death of the heir to the throne, Prince Henry, at the age of just 18. So I wonder, Claire, just to get the ball rolling, if you could just give us an idea of where we are, historically speaking, and who Prince Henry was. So Prince Henry is the oldest son of James VI of Scotland and his wife, Queen Anna of Denmark. He's born in February 1594 at a really critical moment in English politics as well as geopolitically. Um, it's worth remembering throughout this that Prince Henry is Elizabeth I's cousin thrice removed. And in the 1590s, it's very unclear who is going to replace the aging Queen Elizabeth. She's already in her 60s, which no other Tudor monarch had reached. Um, Henry VIII had died at age 55, Henry VII at 52, Edward VI at 15. So people are expecting a succession crisis at any moment. People are really scared that there's going to be some kind of international war of succession. Elizabeth refuses to allow anyone to name her successor or discuss the succession. Her closest hereditary heir is James VI of Scotland, but she refuses to confirm this or allow this to be sort of uh, discussed. There's at least 10 or 12 other claimants, and now uh, James himself is not only an experienced King of Scotland, but he's got an even bigger prize. Um, he's now got a living son. Even some of James's most sort of um, important polemical enemies, like uh, the rector of St Andrews University, um, Andrew Melville, with whom James had a lot of disagreements about church policy. Even Andrew Melville um, acclaims this new son as a Scotto-Britannicus prince, ideal to lead Protestant Europe in a fight against the Catholic Antichrist. So uh, huge amounts of hope are vested in this prince from a very early age. Wow, so he's positioned straight away as somebody who could have both thrones. Yes, absolutely. And you know, this is really up to James's stakes in his claims to succeed Elizabeth. Did James the sixth, James the first, he must have known for some time that he was in line, that he was going to be installed um, to the throne? I think James wanted to believe he would be installed. Um, I don't think anybody could ever have counted their chickens. Um, I mean, uh, it, it didn't seem very likely that Elizabeth would last another nine years after Henry's birth, but she did. Uh, all that time, there is agitation, particularly on the continent. Um, Philip II is keen to advance uh, the claims of Catholics to the throne. Uh, James has to steer a very sort of 
tightrope of not alienating Catholic states, being sufficiently friendly to Catholic nobles, but also maintaining his own credentials as a Protestant experienced king who has an heir. And towards the end of Elizabeth's reign, he uh, embarks on a secret correspondence with um, some of Elizabeth's closest advisors who are always advising him, don't play your hand too early, don't do anything preemptively. You know, I will, as um, one of the courtiers says, ensure that your boat is steered safely into harbour. But even so, when, when Elizabeth dies and James is immediately um, proclaimed as her successor, there is surprise. I mean, most of continental Europe had, had been sure that this would unleash a period of immense instability and potential civil war. Um, so I don't think James would have taken anything as read. So we get to 1603, Elizabeth dies, James comes to the throne with relatively uh, little disquiet. Do we have any idea for certain what music would have been sung at Westminster Abbey that day? We do have a pretty good guess about who might have written the music for Be Strong and Have a Good Courage. The best bet is Thomas Tompkins, who wrote a, uh, an anthem around that time, and it certainly sounds like the kind of piece that might have been sung at the coronation. The text fits, the timing fits. Tompkins is well known in the court by then, so he seems like a very good bet. I think this was really new for the English to have a royal family. Um, it would be quite hard for anybody to imagine what a functioning family had been like after so many decades of the Virgin Queen. That's new. It's also new, very quickly, James, who later becomes known as this Rex Pacificus, decides that the first thing he needs to do is, is end the long-running war with Spain. You know, we think about sort of Drake and the Armada and um, that this was a sort of keystone of sort of English foreign policy and James is, well, Scotland didn't have any argument with Spain. So in 1604, the Treaty of London is concluded you know, here in London, um, creating this new era of peace, um, which has sort of fundamentally reorientates how the English think about the sort of continental other and the Catholic other. And it's quite a fragile piece. And I think probably the most dramatic sense James and Henry get of that comes with the gunpowder plot, um, which is only uh, in 1605. Um, and Henry is a target of the gunpowder plot. It's not only the king, it's not only parliament. Uh, his sister, Princess Elizabeth, is conveniently in Warwickshire, and there's a sense that the plot has hoped that she might be able to be married to a Catholic and sort of installed as a puppet sovereign. But they are absolutely clear that it's not just James, it's Henry, because he symbolizes a sort of eternal Protestant succession. Um, and also his name is redolent of Henry VIII that started the Reformation. So uh, that would have been, quite terrifying for, for the young prince to realise that you know, he, his father, the whole political and ecclesiastical establishment came pretty close to being sort of obliterated in the gunpowder plot. Wow, yes. Um, you talk about a sort of a fragile era of peace. I guess the arts tend to do well in sort of peacetime. Is, is this a sort of a golden age for the, for the arts in England? I, I sort of feel like you, you, know, you look at Jacobean houses and whatever and you know, the ornamentation is running right and the decoration and so on and we, you know, we know about Shakespeare and everything. Is, is this a really good time to be, to be an artistic type, do you think? I think so. I mean, I was about to say, you know, arts do well in times of peace, but I mean, sort of periods of intense tension can also breed enormous amounts of creativity. And um, you know, Shakespeare is, is a perfect example of someone who um, derives so much inspiration from current um, dilemmas. And there are quite a lot of stylized images, I think, when you think of Henry, particularly, say, in the portraiture. And yet it's a slightly contrived image, I think. You know, most of him, mean, this isn't somebody who ever raised a sword in battle. Um, all of his 
combat was in a tilt yard or in a sort of fictional context. And I think you, you get some of that sense from some of the portraiture as well. Um, I mean, this is also the age when chivalry is beginning to be reinterpreted. I mean, Don Quixote becomes the huge, big bestseller, not only on the continent, but is translated into England here. And it, that satirizes the whole notion of knight errantry. Um, so I think when one looks at these sort of chivalric images of Henry, one can sort of see both all the hopes and all the anticipation, but also a slight detachment from the gruesome nature of what becomes the Thirty Years' War on the continent and things. great patron of the arts, I mean, even at such a young age, I don't know what that quite means, but um, do we have any evidence for that? Do we, do we have any evidence for his own artistic interests? Um, do he and his father have different establishments even? I'm not quite sure how that works. You know, we know that, you know, Shakespeare was attached to one and there was a, maybe a troop of actors attached to the other and so on. I think it's hard to know exactly because so much about Henry was written after his death. Yeah. So it was written very much in that prism of nostalgia and loss and um, you know so much is sort of retrospectively sort of ascribed to Henry that I think one has to be you know quite careful in disentangling um, but certainly Henry as he becomes older I mean his great moment is 1610 when he's 16 he's created of the Prince of Wales I mean no one in England can remember the creation of a Prince of Wales um, for more than a hundred years James construes that as a, as a big elaborate um, event. It's a parliamentary installation, but Henry goes by barge um, to Westminster. There's an elaborate um, ceremony that takes place. Um, there's then fireworks and mock sea fights and all sorts of things. And, it, and it's something in which, again, the nation is sort of invited to take part. And I think it's quite important to see Henry and James operating more in symbiosis than they're often sort of portrayed. I mean, you know, James's great claim to the English throne was that he was Protestant, he was an, an hereditary descendant, he had a hereditary claim, and he's also produced an heir and a spare and another spare, Prince Charles. Um, and this is the kind of great moment of um, Henry's um, sort of creation as Prince of Wales. He also takes place in a lot of masks um, that are written specifically, and he plays the title role in Ben Johnson's Oberon. Um, he, in, at the time of his creation, there's uh, elaborate barriers, which are sort of sword fights. I mean, again, it's this sort of rehabilitation and rediscovery of sort of Elizabethan chivalry as well. So in that sense, there is a sort of continuum from, from how people uh, might have remembered the glory days of sort of um, the Virgin Queen. Brilliant. And Kate, you were saying there was a musical link also to the 1610 investiture. Yes. Well, I was surprised when I was researching this to find that um, Tallis's, Thomas Tallis's famous spare menalium, the 40-part motet that was written in the 1570s, I think, was actually performed at Prince of Wales Investiture in uh, 1610 uh, with a newly written English translation or, or a reworking of, of an English text uh, uh, praising Henry, Prince of Wales. So it would have been a rather old-fashioned piece by then, but obviously in 40 parts it's suitable for such an important occasion. Fascinating. <laughs> You can view 
Steely Antico's version of Talis's Speminalium, recorded on smartphones during the 2020 lockdown and released to mark 40 days of quarantine in the UK on the group's YouTube channel. So let's go now to 1612. And how did Prince Henry die? There was a suspicion, inevitably, that nobody could, that demise just couldn't have been so unforeseen. Um, interestingly, uh, his mother gets in touch with Walter Raleigh in the tower and asks for one of his potions to be sent, and Raleigh sends it saying, you know, this will be good for a fever, but it wouldn't cure a poisoning, which wasn't very helpful, uh, comment to sort of make at the time. Um, but no, I think there is utter shock. I mean, it's not just the sort of personal tragedy of losing an 18-year-old son. It's sort of everything that, that um, Henry had, had represented. I mean, it, it was, it's, it's such a sort of fragile period geopolitically. Um, Henry, Henri IV, Henry IV of France had been assassinated in 1610 and that was Prince Henry's godfather. Um, and at the time, Prince Henry had said, oh, you know, that's like my second father dying. And all the hopes of the French Protestants had immediately just transferred themselves from Henri IV to Prince Henry. Um, so, you know, his, his, this was seen as the great bulwark against Catholic Spain. So all across Europe, there are people saying, you know, this is dreadful. This is this sort of great Protestant champion um, that we all hoped would one day lead, you know, Europe in a great sort of triumph. And interestingly, those those alliances weren't just sort of always simple sort of Protestant Catholic. I mean, a lot of he had a lot of support in France just because he <laughs> might oppose the Spanish. Yeah. And James was totally grief stricken. I mean, his position was significantly weakened by by Henry's death. Um, also, if one thinks about where it left the succession, um, he has another son, Prince Charles, but Prince Charles has always been the weakling, the child that was left behind in Scotland, who had rickets, who had a stammer. Um, nobody thinks Charles is really going to last very long, so Charles is 12 when his, his, his brother dies. Um, and his sister has just got engaged at the time of um, uh, Henry's death to uh, the Elector Palatine, who's seen as one of the great sort of Protestant leaders in Central Europe, but she's about to leave for the continent. Um, so suddenly, you know, that, that great royal family that had appeared, you know, less than a decade earlier, um, you know, is, is really rocked to the core. Obviously, Prince Henry dies. Uh, it's it's uh, Prince Charles who comes to the throne in the end. Uh, things don't end well. England's plunged into civil war. He loses his head and so on. Um, I just wonder how things might have been different had James I been succeeded by King Henry IX, as you say, rather than King Charles I. Do you get any sense of what might have turned out differently? It's all speculation, isn't it? I mean, that's the thing we all know about Henry is that he died. Um, so he is somebody that we often come to know sort of through death. There were certainly lots of people who were very keen to um, sort of say what it's funny they, often they pun on the word sun so there was this sort of shock that our rising sun has sort of already set before it had really had a chance to shine and the sort of pun on the sun of the king but also this sort of sun that emitted light in the sort of Louis XIV sun king way. I think it's important though to sort of dis disentangle the sort of quite fluid situation 1609, 1610, 1612 with a much more polarised geopolitical situation once the Thirty Years' War breaks out from 1618. Yes. So Charles, um, Charles and, and Henry's sister Elizabeth is at the centre of that. Ill-advisedly, um, Elizabeth's husband had taken the crown of Bohemia um, in 1618. Uh, against Catholic opposition. He'd been ejected. He and his wife were known as the Winter King and Queen, and they were, they were 
forced from Prague and they fled to um, the Dutch Republic. And that was really the sort of, nobody knew at the time, but that was the sort of spark that then unleashed the Thirty Years' War that convulsed continental Europe right until the end of the 1640s. And that, then it was quite easy to say, oh, well, you know, had we had somebody like Prince Henry, you know, then we would have been able to, I mean, the sort of adoration that gets transferred really quite inexplicably to people like Gustavus Adolphus of Sweden, who has no link to the Stuarts at all, or you know, any link to Britain. I mean, there's a huge cult of Gustavus in the 1620s and 1630s because he's a Protestant warrior king who's winning battles against the Catholic Antichrist. So it was very easy to sort of say, well, that's what Henry would have been doing um, and to criticize Charles in the same way that James had been sort of criticized. At the same time, Parliament isn't always very keen to vote huge amounts of money to go and sort of get involved in a continental war. Uh, a lot of people looked back on the 1630s as, you know, sort of halcyon days of peace by the time of the Civil War when Europe was being ravaged. So I think it's very easy to sort of vest everything into Henry. I mean, quite interestingly, the way in which he was always sort of evoked as some Elizabethan hero itself involves quite a lot of exaggeration. I mean, Elizabeth I, you know, never sort of spent huge amounts sending massive armies on the sort of scale that would have been needed in the, in the Thirty Years' War. <laughs> she sent a few people to the Netherlands. Um, so, uh, yes, I mean, I, I think it's all speculation. I guess we just have to look at the sort of range of music that was written, you know, the time to sort of this range of artistic response. We've talked about some of the sacred pieces, but there's lots of secular music as well, isn't there? Yes, yeah, there are many madrigals that mourn Prince Henry, but they're not madrigals in the way that we would think of uh, uh, jolly little sort of numbers. They, they are miserable music as well, but in, in a, with using secular texts, as it were. I mean, it's such fine music, and I think a lot of this Jacobean music is. I, I sort of wonder sometimes, do we, do we neglect it a little bit in favour of the Tudor music, we as Steely Antique or, or sort of more widely early music groups? It's so easy perhaps to programme Tudor music and there's a strong story behind it. Do you think we should be singing a bit more of this um, Jacobean music? Yeah, I do wonder if it's a bit neglected. There are a few sort of old classic favourites that get wheeled out at various cathedral services. And so, you know, Gibbons and Tompkins and, and Wheels, you, you see them on cathedral music lists. And they do pop up in, in concerts as well in performances. But I think there are many pieces that are neglected. And I, I, I'm not entirely sure. Maybe you're right that it's partly about the, the Tudor history so strong. It's such an... Uh, uh, interesting story this sort of oscillation between Catholic and Protestant whereas by the time we get to the Jacobean period as we've been hearing the, the history and the politics it's all a little bit more messy and a bit more complicated so maybe it's partly that that it's harder to kind of hang on to the context of it. I think there's also in this Jacobean music there's a kind of earnestness and a sort of heart on sleeve that, that maybe isn't particularly fashionable at the moment and this kind of serious sort of serious character that doesn't maybe feel feels a little bit alien to us in some ways but the, the music is wonderful and it's definitely worth exploring yes I, I absolutely agree
Kate, we've just heard music from another Prince Henry piece by Robert Ramsey, that was Sleep, Fleshly Birth. Um, before we hear our full spotlight piece, How Are the Mighty Fallen, I just wonder if you could tell us a little bit more about Robert Ramsey, tell us something about his life and his career. Sure, I can have a go. Um, we, don't, we don't have an awful lot of uh, records of him. The first record we have of him is in 1616 at Trinity College, Cambridge, and it seems that he stayed there for most of his working life. Um, there, there is some speculation that he may have been related to the Ramsey family of court trumpeters who came from Scotland with James I, so like he may Prince actually Henry. have been Scottish, uh, but I, I, I think there's very little evidence about that other than, of course, the family name. Uh, but he seems to have been uh, a student at Trinity College, Cambridge. Um, we, we know he graduated with a B must from there. He must have been pretty young, actually, at the time that Prince Henry died, probably in his early 20s. Um, and then he stayed in Trinity College and became the director of music there, and he wrote music for Trinity College, Cambridge, and also for Peterhouse College. He, he wrote in a mixture of different styles. Some of his music is quite old-fashioned. The pieces that we're hearing today are uh, very much in the sort of old English style. Uh, some of the music he wrote... Ironically, the Latin music she tended music, to be yeah. uh, much more up-to-date, and that was almost looking ahead to the music of Henry Purcell. It's, it's quite sort of modern and much more Italian in influence and things. And that was probably written for Peterhouse College because uh, their liturgy was in Latin at the time. Oh, I see. Is there a reason why he's so little known today, do you think? There's not a lot of it that survives. Um, uh, some pieces that survive are incomplete. Um, he doesn't seem to have published very much, so most of it is in manuscript, and it's very easy to lose one of the part books, which means it can't be performed. He... He seems to have stayed in Cambridge all his life. So he, although he would have had court connections, maybe he wasn't quite so you know, enmeshed in the world of the day, so his music doesn't become quite as well established. But it, it's very fine music, and it does deserve to be heard more, I think, the stuff that has come down to us. Well, we're pretty lucky in Stile to sing all sorts of wonderful music, but there are you know, pieces that stand out as having a little extra something, and I think How Is the Mighty Fallen is definitely one of those. Um, sort of impossible question, but can you put your finger on what makes this piece um, so special? Well, it's a setting of uh, David's lament for his best friend, Jonathan, uh, and it is an extraordinary piece. It's on quite an epic scale. Um, unusually, it's in three different sections, so um, often pieces might be in a couple of sections, but this has three sections, and it sort of takes us on a real journey of grief through this uh, extended madrigal. Um, the, the first section and the third section start with the same text, but with a very different musical setting. So we, we get different characters through this, uh, and he uses some really dense chromaticism to really bring out the uh, expressions of grief. Um, so it's a, it feels like a really extraordinarily heartfelt piece. One of the things I particularly love about it, actually, is, is the distinction between sometimes the individual vocal lines are really, really individually expressive, and then there are moments where it's as though the six parts are expressing something communally. So you always get this tension between the individual lines and the kind of communal expression of grief, which I think is really effective. Yeah, I think that's really true. Um, you talked about the harmony just a little bit, and I certainly remember when, when I first sang it as a treble being struck by all these extraordinary um, false relations, you know, when you've, you know, somebody's singing, you know, an A natural and an A sharp or whatever simultaneously. Um, that's obviously quite exciting just to sing, just to feel the kind of the parts um, you know, clashing with each other in that way. But I think also he's really good, Ramsey, at a sort of large scale harmonic planning. It feels a very sort of satisfying shape, and I think he uses different key areas um, really expressively. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, the, everybody loves the scrunchy false relations, and they're the, the juicy bits to sing into. But yes, you're right, there's a sort of re really uh, impressive pacing of the harmony. And I think also the way that he uses the major modes yes. to kind of be especially expressive. So when we get this, the first uh, time we hear, oh, Jonathan, the, the name of this 
beloved uh, friend who's died, uh, he, he suddenly goes into the major and that somehow makes it even more expressive, even more sad. And, and, and there are sort of extended major passages where he's remembering how wonderful his friend was. Um, uh, so, yeah, the way he uses harmony really, really colours the emotion of the text. Some sort of bittersweet colour you get from it. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. We're so used to thinking of major as happy and minor as sad, but clearly around this time and, and in the music of people like William Byrd as well, it, it clearly was a bit more ambiguous about uh, whether the major key was really happy or not. It could be sort of very poignantly, almost over sad. So it's so sad that you then end up singing in the major key and I think it's very expressive. Yeah. Don't forget that you can catch up with the first episode of Stile Antico's Spotlight Films at www.vimeo.com forward slash on demand forward slash spotlights. The next episode, focused on Alonso Lobo's exquisite Versa est in Luctum, premieres on the 2nd of May 2022.